Well, let's pray together. Father, thank You for the hopeful vision that was given to John to write uh, things like God will be with us and dwell with us and that we will be His people and He will be our God and that every tear will be wiped away and all of these uh, current sorrows and pains uh, will one day be only a memory. And we do ask now, just as we sang a minute ago, that You would speak and that Your Word would reveal to us more of what You are like and what we are like and our uh, condition before You and uh, how, how You have made us to belong to You and to be like Your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray all this in His name. Amen. Uh, please turn in your Bible, if you have not already, to Isaiah chapter 24. When we met a couple of weeks ago, we actually left off in chapter, I think, 16. Uh, so we're skipping ahead a little bit, but for good reason. I, hopefully you'll pick up on it as we go. If you're looking for Isaiah 24 and you have a Bible that you're borrowing from this room here, uh, you'll find that on page 497. Page 497 is where Isaiah 24 begins. I want you to uh, think about your future. Not predict your future. Just think about when you picture your own future, think about you know whatever comes to mind. So you might, for, in the future I understand is very general. So when I say think about the future, you might only be thinking about later on tonight. Or how long is Mr. Prairie going to stand up there and talk? That may be as far into the future as you think. But maybe when you think about the future, you're thinking beyond just hours or days. You're thinking maybe uh, to you know, adulthood. And you're thinking uh, about hopes and dreams that you might have uh, for years and even decades to come. And when you think about those things, probably... Uh, you're, you're doing so like with eager anticipation. Normally when we look to the future, it's because there's something that we want to get to. There's something now that we want to get past so we can get to something better in the future, normally. So, uh, for myself, there are, there are things here in this life that I'm anticipating, I'm looking forward to. Uh, when Brandy and I had the chance last fall to visit Moldova... Uh, after we had, had made a uh, decision to move there, and then we visited, and we decided, yeah, this is really what we think the Lord wants us to do. Uh, on our trip, we spent one of those nights helping to lead a Bible study. And this was a, a group of people that had been meeting together for some time, even, even at that time. And as it stands now, I think they've been meeting pretty much every week for like a year and a half, this, this same group of people. Not a large Group. In fact, I would say even smaller than the number, probably about half the size of, of what's in this room right now. But this Sunday, that group of people will officially meet as a church for the first time. And they're launching this new church, they're planting this new church. 
They're calling it Imago Dei, which is a Latin phrase that means image of God. And emphasizing uh, that, that all, all of us, all people, are made in God's image. And one of my hopes, so when I think about the future, and I think about what the Lord has down the road for myself, for my family, one of my hopes is to serve alongside the young guys who are um, overseeing, who are going to oversee that church. And so to work with them, to lead that church, but then also to raise up other leaders, uh, young guys especially who can, who can pastor not just that church, but others as we hope to uh, spread the gospel in that part of the world. So, so I have things in this life that I'm looking forward to. Now, I, I don't know what your hopes are, specifically, for most of you, but whatever they are, they give you something to strive for. They give you goals that you set. However, if our hopes are only for things that will happen or could happen in this life, those hopes probably will, we will end up being disappointed by those hopes, won't we? Most likely, to some extent. So, so if I think that, that us moving overseas and doing what, what we think to be this, this really neat kind of work, uh, if I think that that's all going to be pretty easy, I'm probably fooling myself, aren't I? And, and whatever line of work you want to go into, whatever career you want to have, you know, whatever, wherever you want to end up academically, um, probably if you have lofty enough goals and hopes, it's going to be a, a pretty difficult road. So we need to be really careful to not only put our hopes in things that, are, that can only be fulfilled in this life. Um, there are certain things that we tend to hope in that are not strong enough to hold our hopes. So, so if you are putting your hopes in something like money, and you just think, I want to make a lot of it, I want to be really wealthy, well, you could probably do that. You could probably achieve that goal. Uh, but, but your hope in money will not actually uh, support your hopes. It's not meant to do it. It can't do it. If you're putting your hopes in friends, your friends will let you down. If you're putting your hopes in, uh, in marriage, so you hope to get married one day, that's a fine thing to hope for. But if you put your hope in someone that you're going to marry, that person will, will let you down. They will not be able to hold up uh, your hopes. They were never meant to. Uh, if you put it in your job, it will let you down. If you put your hopes in some sort of achievement, so you want to be a great athlete, you want to be a great musician, Especially if you put your hopes in other in sports teams, they will let you down. They will hurt you. They will betray you. I speak from experience. They may try, but they cannot sustain your hopes. So tonight we're going to look beyond the hopes that we might have just for this life, and we're going to to I think set our hopes on what is to come. What is the future for all of God's people? So we're going to see some of what God does in the future, some of what God does even at the end of time. And maybe you think about the end of time and it kind of makes you uneasy. Uh, you know, it, it raises more questions than answers. Uh, then I think this will be very helpful for you because we want to see that what God does in the future is actually telling us about who he is now. We're going to learn a lot about God's character tonight, I think. So we're in Isaiah 24. Isaiah was a, uh, a prophet. Isaiah spoke God's messages. And he did it mainly to the nation of Judah. And he did it during, during the reign of certain kings. Four kings specifically are named. And he did it before Judah, God's people, went into exile. So they hadn't yet gone into exile. 
And when we spent some time in the first 12 chapters, we saw God's evaluation of his people. Mostly it was not good. And we saw Isaiah specifically be called by God to go and tell God's people that they weren't doing so well. So mainly Isaiah's job was to preach mostly bad news, which is interesting. And then we got to chapter 13, and in in chapter 13 through 23, there are these oracles, these visions and warnings that are not really about Judah, they're about other nations, all these uh, national powers that were on earth at that time. And so Isaiah kind of zoomed into those, and now, in chapter 24, he kind of zooms out. So he's, he's pulling the camera back, and he shows the future of the whole earth. And not all of Isaiah's previous messages were negative. Some were positive. There was, there was hope, but also warning. And, and in these chapters tonight, you're going to also see hope and warning. So you've got a bulletin, I think. We've got five main points. Each main point gives a truth about God that he will especially show in the future. So down the road, at the end of time. But those truths in the future also give us an indication of what God is like now. So here's the first truth. You'll want to write these in as we go. Number one, the first truth is that the Lord will empty the earth. He will empty it. You can see that right from the very first verse here. Isaiah chapter 24 and verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And he'll do this not just for one nation, but for the whole earth. Now think back to the very beginning of the Bible that I know most of us are pretty familiar with. In the beginning of the Bible, what is God doing? Genesis 1 and 2, we see God doing what? What? Creating the earth, the heavens and the earth. And the earth starts off empty and God begins to fill it. So at the beginning of time, God is filling the earth. Well, here in Isaiah 24, we're told that one day God will empty the earth. All the things that God put in it will one day be emptied by God. Well, why would that now happen? And Isaiah gives us the reason why this would happen. Uh, Look at at your notes there and write this down. The reason is that the inhabitants of the earth, namely the people have broken his everlasting covenant. They have broken his everlasting covenant. So that is stated very specifically in verse 5. Look at verse 5. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. And this happens for people regardless of what status they are. So if you look back at chapter 2, or sorry, verse 2, And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with the master. As with the maid, so her mistress. As with the buyer, so the seller, the lender and borrower, the creditor, the debtor. So, So regardless of what your status is on earth, you cannot escape, no one can escape, being emptied from the earth. So, so again, this relates to what we talked about at the beginning. If you and I tend to put our hopes in some kind of status, so if we think, well, if I just have a certain amount of money or I can have a certain job 
or I can be at a certain level in society, you know, then maybe that's my ultimate hope. Well, if that's your ultimate hope, Isaiah 24 says, you will still be emptied from the earth. Now, why is the earth emptied of these people? What are these people guilty of? Everybody's guilty, and they're guilty of, according to verse 5, breaking the, the everlasting covenant. Who's the one who makes covenants? God is, right? Covenants are promises. Covenants are God's uh, agreements that He makes with people. God sets up laws and God makes promises to His people according to those laws. And who has broken those covenants? Who's guilty? Everyone. All people who have ever lived are guilty. And this is an eternal covenant, an everlasting covenant. Apparently God made some of these covenants, some of His promises to humanity, even the New Testament tells us, He made a lot of these promises before the foundation of the earth. So before creation. That's why it's an everlasting covenant. And when God keeps promises, how long does He keep His promises? Forever. That's why, Again, that's why it's an everlasting covenant. And almost all of Isaiah's message and really all the prophets' messages are in relation to God's covenants. Are the people obeying them? If so, then the prophets have good things to say about them. If the people are not obedient, the prophets don't have great things to say about them. So here's what's summarized throughout the rest of this section here. You can write this in your notes as well. The summary is that when the earth is emptied, joy and gladness will only be found in the glory of the name of the righteous one. Joy and gladness will only be found in the glory of the name of the righteous one. So there's two perspectives given here. Look at verse 11. As the earth is emptied, Isaiah says in verse 11, There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. So where, is, where has the joy and gladness on earth gone? It's been taken away, hasn't it? It's been emptied like everything else on the earth. And yet there's another perspective. Go down to verse 14. There are some who, verse 14, they lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. And they shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord the God of Israel, and from the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. Okay, so if you have one group of people who says, there's no more joy and gladness on earth, and then you have another group of people who they are continually singing glad and joyful songs, what must be the difference between those two groups of people? Why would some on earth even as it's being emptied, say there's no joy, and others sing for joy and gladness. What would be the difference? It would have to be how they relate to the one who's emptying the earth, isn't it? The difference is, have they given themselves to the glory of this righteous one? Let's move on. Number two, second truth we see here about the Lord is that He will punish the earth. He will punish the earth. This is another way of describing the emptying 
that was taking place. But look at how it says it there in verse 21. So towards the end of the chapter, On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth, on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in prison. And after many days, they will be punished. So the Lord is emptying the earth. He's obviously going to pour out His punishment on all things in the future. And here's the reason why He will do this. Look at verse 23. Then the moon will be confounded, the sun will be ashamed, because the Lord of hosts, what? Reigns. He reigns. Write that in your notes. The reason that the Lord will punish the earth is because the Lord of hosts reigns as king. And where does he reign from? According to verse 23, the Lord of hosts reigns where? On Mount Zion and in in Jerusalem. So he reigns from one location, but how far does his reign spread? Apparently over the what's mentioned at the beginning of verse 23. The moon and the sun. So think about this. The Lord reigns from earth and his reign extends over the entire universe, over moon and sun even. And that last phrase there, the summary of it, is that His glory will be before His elders. So you could write that in your notes as the summary. His glory will be before His elders. Elders is a word that usually means the spiritual leaders in the land. So sometimes it might be the king. So you remember how when we, would, uh, when we spent some time in First and Second Kings, we saw some kings who were very godly in character, right? And when the king was godly, what was usually the behavior of the rest of the nation? It was the same. That's exactly right. It was also very godly, which meant when you had a wicked king ruling the land, the behavior of the people was also very wicked. And so the elders are the, are the leaders of the land, usually the spiritual leaders of the land. Maybe a king, maybe a priest, but they would set the tone. And so verse 20, or chapter 24 ends by telling us that the, one day the glory of the Lord will be before all His elders. All the people will see His glory. And when that happens, here's the third thing. The Lord will be exalted. The Lord will be exalted. And keep in mind, these are all pictures of what the Lord is telling us of what will be true on earth at the end of all things. Now, in some ways, is the Lord exalted already here and now? Yes, I think so. I think even as we meet now, even as, as we're paying attention to His Word, and as we're singing truths about Him, I think we are exalting the Lord. But the Lord will be exalted universally in a greater way. He will be worshipped as the king of the universe that he really is one day in the future. So chapter 25 and verse 1. Isaiah, as a result of all this, begins to really pray to God. He says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old. Faithful and sure. Plans formed of old. Again, telling us that these are things God has intended to happen all along from the very beginning of time. Now here's the reason that the Lord will be exalted. 
fully in the future. Verse 2, For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress. So the reason, write this in your notes, the reason the Lord will be exalted is because he is a stronghold for the needy. Now, why would the Lord talk about the needy in the future? Let's think about this. If the Lord is going to empty the earth, who then becomes needy? Everybody, right? All peoples. The Lord empties the earth, and people will everywhere realize we are entirely dependent on the Lord to now provide for us if we don't recognize that already. And the Lord is this. He's a stronghold for the needy, and He will be that in the future. Now look at how the rest of this chapter summarizes God's work in the future. How will God provide, how specifically will God be a stronghold for the needy? Look at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. So the summary there, write this in. He swallows up death and saves his people. And about three times in those few verses, he says all this is going to take place on this mountain. What mountain do you think he's describing there? Mount Zion, exactly, in Jerusalem. So again, this is a promise that it's going to happen on earth. God will remake the earth. He will be exalted and worshipped as king, and he'll set a feast before all peoples, being a stronghold for all of us who are needy. And Revelation 21, like Cheryl read for us, described as a heavenly city that comes down to earth so that God can be with his people. Number four, the fourth truth, the Lord will ordain peace for his people. He will ordain peace for his people. Chapter 26, verse 1 In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks, open the gates that the righteous nation may, uh, that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace. So there he is ordaining peace. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. 
He has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground and casts it to the dust. So there's a comparison here between cities. Uh, You might describe it. Some have described it as the city of God or the city of man. Okay? If man builds his city, do we think it will last? If God builds a city, will it last? So you see this comparison, right? Man's cities are cast down to the dust. They are laid low, but God's city is described as strong and full of salvation and full of peace. Go down to verse 12, and you see how this idea is continued. He says, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. You have indeed done for us all our works. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. In other words, we remember you, not others. Why? Because verse 14, they are dead, they will not live. They are shades, they will not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. This gives the impression that all of the great cities that have ever lived on the earth will one day just pass away and be forgotten, and only the city of God will remain. Now here's why God will do this for His people. Why will God bring peace for His people? Here's the reason. Write this in. The, they, because they sought Him in their distress. They sought Him in their distress. So verse 16 makes this very plain. O Lord, in distress they sought You. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. And this again explains why um, that when, when we misplace our hopes, we are a distressed people. When we recognize that the Lord is the only one who can give us true hope and all our other hopes will one day be emptied, and we seek God in that distress, it is then that we find peace. So if you're, if you're thinking again that your hopes... In this life will bring you ultimate peace. Isaiah is telling us that is not true. That is not the case. And he summarizes that statement this way. You can write this in your notes. He delivers his people from death. He delivers his people from death. So verse 19. This is actually pretty remarkable. Pay attention here. Verse 19. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Apparently some people will die. That shouldn't be surprising because in fact all people die, right? But God's people don't stay dead. They are raised. Their bodies are raised up. Death doesn't have the last word. And, and so, so as Isaiah is summarizing these things... And he's explaining how this is true for things to come in the world. This really only makes sense when you think about this through the lens of Christianity. Okay, so maybe, maybe you think to yourself, why is Christianity any more valid than any other belief system? What makes it any more trustworthy? Well, Isaiah is summarizing it here for us because if you trust in anything other than the Lord, Isaiah says death is the only thing to look forward to. Death and separation from God and being emptied from the earth. 
But the only way to be victorious through death, to actually rise again, is to put your trust in the Lord. And this is consistent with the, the, the whole story of the Bible and with what Christianity is all about. That God has created the earth and He will one day uncreate it because of people's sin, because of my sin and your sin, the sin of all people since Adam. And even it, But even as God judges the earth and punishes its sin, He extends His mercy. Because when Jesus came and He lived and He died in our place, God was both punishing towards sin and merciful towards sinners. Because God punished sin by punishing His Son. So that you and I don't have to be punished for our sins. Instead, we can receive mercy. And God raised Jesus from the dead, which guarantees that all who follow Jesus will also one day be raised from the dead. Which means that what Isaiah says here can be true of us if we will turn from sin and trust Christ completely. I urge you to do that if you've not yet made that decision. Final truth from tonight, number five, and we'll end with this. The Lord will punish the serpent and slay the dragon. The Lord will punish the serpent and slay the dragon. Look at verse of chapter 27 and verse 1. In that day, the Lord, with His hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and He will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now, Leviathan, uh, you, can, you can actually read a little bit more about this creature uh, in, at the end of the book of Job. Now, now, maybe when the Bible talks about Leviathan, maybe this is a mythical creature. Or maybe it's something that actually existed that is now extinct. We don't know. Uh, the point is that every time Leviathan is talked about in the Bible, he's talked about as though he's a serpent and a dragon, which are the exact words also used to describe what enemy of God? Satan himself, right? So back in the garden, Genesis 3 and in Revelation 20, you've got the dragon who is chained and bound because he leads the people astray. Yes, sir? Can I just say this is one of the like, coolest verses in the Bible? I think so, too. <laughs> I think so, too. And, and, and God, uh, remember back at the beginning, so Genesis 3, uh, God, in speaking to the serpent, in, in announcing the curse on the serpent, he says, um, you're going to have enmity. There's going to be enmity between uh, your seed and her seed, between the, the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. And the serpent actually would succeed in crushing the, uh, the foot of the seed of the woman. But what happens to the serpent's head? It gets crushed. And so the Lord says here that, that he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. I think that's another way of saying he will crush the head of the serpent. And the reason is... Write this in. The reason is so that the garden can be restored. So you read in chapter 2 about a pleasant vineyard. And, and in verse 6 about in days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. This is garden imagery. The Lord is going to replant Eden once the serpent is cast out and slain. And that is true, again, you see that imagery not only in Genesis, at the beginning of Genesis, but also at the end of Revelation. And here's the summary of this final point. The people will be exiled 
But exile will accomplish the removal of sin. Exile will accomplish the removal of sin. Read verse 8. Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, by this exile, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. Look at the very last verse in that chapter, verse 13. And in that day a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. The reason the exile can remove sin is because Jesus was exiled for us. Jesus was sent out. Remember remember on the cross, Uh, He prayed to God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was exiled from his father so that you and I don't have to be. And in his exile, we are invited back to his mountain, to Jerusalem, to worship him there. So God's plan for the future of his people is a hopeful one. So if you fear the end of all things, I wonder if it's because your hopes are misplaced. And so I would urge you, I would urge all of us to transfer our lives, transfer our hopes from things of this world on to the creator of this world, on to Christ himself. Let's pray. Father, these truths are higher and greater than we can even realize. And though for us oftentimes the future seems very distant and it seems almost improbable and unattainable please let us be reminded that what you say always comes to pass and that we can have the prospect of a hopeful future because of what you have done for us and what you continue to do for us so lord i pray that as we break into groups now and as we talk through these things as we encourage one another that that you will uh, help us to apply help us to to see how we best can Uh, can live these days in light of those days to come. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.